Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. We're back. Folks, we've had a bit of a hiatus from the podcast. Life during the time of COVID has been interesting. For me, it has been that and more. During this time, I faced the loss of my sister, more than a few challenges, and even some opportunities. But we are back, and I'm very glad to say that we are. We are even more committed than ever to producing a monthly podcast that you tell us you love to listen to and have missed during this time. Thank you for listening. Now on to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is episode 43, and it was recorded on Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a CEO of Betrayal Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our 10th episode of 2020. We were joined by Ian McQuillan, director and founder of Regari, Paula Atfield, president and CEO Stephen Thomas Limited, and Scott Dexheimer, Senior Counsel and Co-Founder of Atreo. Many Canadians feel that fundraising should be done by volunteers, that charities should not have paid staff, and that fundraising and the marketing of fundraising has become too aggressive. Turns out, combating these sentiments with facts doesn't work. Instead, what does work is changing the narrative. Join us as we hear how Canadian fundraisers are helping to change the conversation about fundraising. All this and more on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 43 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is our 10th episode of 2020. Our topic, the fundraising narrative, telling our story. We've invited three amazing leaders, all of whom work with, work with and advise clients in the global nonprofit space. I'm excited to be here. They're excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from the United Kingdom, we have Ian McQuillan. Ian McQuillan is the director of the international fundraising think tank, Regare, which he founded in 2014. I first met Ian at an AFP Canadian leadership retreat a few years ago. Since then, we've met on several occasions at AFP conferences and AFP Canada events. This is not Ian's first podcast appearance, but it is his first time joining us on Brain Trust Philanthropy. Welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thank you. Glad to be here. Ian, we're going to hear a lot more about your role in helping Canadian fundraisers and, the, and Canadian fundraising with how we talk about our profession and ourselves later in the podcast. But just before that, as you know, we follow each other on Facebook. One thing I've noticed is that you're quite a cocktail artist. All of them look delicious. You posted one in August called The Rubber Soul. I'm wondering, is the art of the cocktail a, a hobby, a, a passion, or a pastime for you? It's become a lot more important to me since lockdown. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've always loved cocktails. Cocktails are so much more than the sum of their parts. They're just this wonderful gestalt thing and they are amazing. And since I can't go out for them, I've got, a, I've got an antique 1960s bar because I'm very mid-century in my, in my living room and there were just a few bottles in there. And since lockdown, it has been seriously, seriously stocked up. I'm not going out. I'm not spending money on going out. And that money needed an alcohol outlet. And it was in stock in my bar. And yeah, you're right. I've created The Rubber Soul was named after the album by the Beatles because I found another one online called A Revolver. I've got a West Ken Yank, a Lambretta, which is a riff on the Vespa. So, you know, I've, I've enjoyed making uh, my own cocktail. So it's great. My hobby is making and drinking cocktails. 
love it. It's a great hobby. I um I think that a uh, few of us may actually think about making that uh, an official activity of our work. I highly recommend it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Next, joining us from Toronto, we have Paula Atfield. Paula is the president and CEO of Stephen Thomas Limited. Stephen Thomas has been serving charities from across the world for almost 40 years. The agency's tagline says, tagline says it all. We're passionate about helping charities raise more money. In addition to her busy CEO role, Paula is also the current chair of AFP Canada, our national body representing fundraisers and fundraising in Canada. This is not Paula's first time joining us on Brain Trust Philanthropy. She joined us back in 2018 and again in 2019, both times to speak about trends for the coming year. Hmm. None of us saw COVID coming. Welcome back to the podcast, Paula. Thanks, Vincent. Paula, I know the critical role you've played in developing and in promoting Canada's fundraising narrative, and we will be talking about that narrative in a few minutes. Before we do, though, I'm wondering, can you share with us a little bit about how you and Stephen Thomas and your clients are faring during this time? Of course, Vincent, and uh, I, I love how uh, Ian gets the fun cocktail-related question. I get the serious business question. <laughs> it seems not fair, but I'm going to run with it. Um, I'm really excited to say that direct response fundraising is actually making a comeback, whether it's despite of the pandemic or because of the pandemic, I'm not entirely sure. But what I do know is that, you know, with in-person fundraising events being canceled and the challenge of not being able to see the corporate and our major gift donors face to face, we're finding actually a renewed growth of traditional channels in fundraising, such as mail and phone, particularly when combined with new and emerging digital channels, which is, which is exciting for us. And many of our clients here at Stephen Thomas who do use the mail to reach existing and new donors and do use other channels, uh, direct response channels, they're finding their, their results are actually increasing, which is, which is very exciting. Additionally, uh, maybe it's because of the, the pandemic, I'm not sure, but Canadians are, are also making, uh, making their wills in bigger numbers than ever before. And we're finding that when asked effectively by fundraisers, that, that Canadians are including um, uh, their favorite charities in their wills. So this is a good time. The Canadians are generous and, and we're excited about that. And we're excited about helping charities connect to their donors. Thanks, Paul. That's a very positive message. Did I hear you say that, that digital is expanding, but direct mail is still good? Or did I miss that? Direct mail is still good and actually expanding. Okay. We, we, we thought for a while it was going to be dead, but it lives on. All right. So people don't mind touching a letter that's been touched by all these covid hands? Not at all. I think that was a concern initially as far as COVID goes, but uh, more and more we're hearing from the health experts that COVID is transmitted through aerosols and, and that it's airborne and, and not as readily transmitted by touch. And even if it were, I think the, the, the incidence of COVID being spread by, um, by touch through the mail were probably zero. Yeah. Well, that's good that you reinforced that because that is something a lot of people think, uh, not me, of course. Uh, <laughs> 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 Thanks, Paula. Finally, last but not least, we are joined by Vitreo Senior Counsel and co-founder Scott Dexheimer. Like Paula, Scott is no stranger to our podcast. Scott has been on this podcast five times. This makes six. Scott, thank you for taking the time and welcome back. Great to be here. Like Paula and Ian, Scott has played an integral role with developing, and well, many people have played an integral role, but Scott and, and, and Paula and Ian have played a role in developing and leveraging the fundraising narrative in Canada. 
Thank you for that, Scott, and thank you for your service to AFP. Scott, before we hear from you and from our other guests on that topic, when I called you yesterday, you and one or maybe both of your sons were busy in your kitchen making something that involved a food grinder, some bacon, some Velveeta cheese. Honestly, it sounds horrific, um, but it also in some ways sounds delicious. I'm wondering if you can share with us just what the heck you were making. Well, it's a family recipe from my wife's family, actually, that she learned from her grandmother. And you actually just said the entire recipe is you put bacon and Velveeta cheese into a food grinder. And, uh, but you, the better the bun, if you spread it on top of a bun and broil it in the oven, it is really wonderfully delicious. And I have yet to see a leftover of them or somebody ever leave one behind on their plate because they are, are one of the most fantastic dishes, but, um, likely should be eaten not very regularly and in small portions if you're for the, for the good of your health, but it is a right, wonderful right, right. culinary so, experience. So you want a cardiologist on standby, but otherwise it's good. Um, yeah, I've got one. Yeah. Is there a name for this dish? Uh, basically cheesy bacon buns is what they're called. So, okay. you know, it's pretty simple. It's yeah. a descriptive. Yeah. Very descriptive. Okay. And, and, and what's, what quantity were you making? Uh, well, we made enough. Uh, we two pounds of bacon with a uh, with an entire brick of Velveeta cheese. So that makes that'll make that'll be enough for actually three meals. So uh, so I'm very proud of the fact we'll stretch that <laughs> over great. over a few days. Yeah, well, I, I think that Ian, you need to come up with a cocktail that would pair with such an amazing. Uh, I have just written down cheesy bacon buns because I'm thinking of inventing a cocktail called cheesy bacon buns. <laughs> <laughs> it all started here. That's great. Okay. Let's get started. Thank you all for joining uh, us on this, our 43rd podcast. Today's topic is the fundraising narrative, telling our story. Fundraising has a perception problem. Many Canadians feel that fundraising should be done by volunteers, that charities are spending too much uh, on fundraising and too much on paid staff. Further, many Canadians feel that charities have become too aggressive with their fundraising and that they're spending too much on marketing, especially the marketing of fundraising. Our traditional response has, uh, has been to combat these sentiments, as you guessed it, with facts. Uh, we have rationally tried to win over our detractors by being rational. Well, it isn't working. It hasn't worked and it's not likely to work, but, but why not? Does fundraising actually have a perception problem or is something else going on here? I originally was going to uh, turn this over to Ian to start this conversation off, and then I was reminded that it actually goes back even further than that. Um, and the idea about dealing with this issue uh, is something that AFP and AFP Canada and leaders in our country have been thinking about for a while. And I know Scott, when he was in, that, in his role uh, with AFP Canada and in other roles of AFP, he was thinking about what to do about this. So, Scott, I'm going to turn this over to you to maybe tell us a little bit about how this all started. Um, the fundraising narrative, which we now talk about today, didn't always have that title. Yeah, when we started the uh, you know AFP Canada, we were really challenged to be the voice of, of the profession and fundraising in Canada. And as part of that, and, and being the, the founding chair, um, there, there was always concern about, a, about an issue potentially happening that might take our eye off the ball. And so, you know, be, uh, you know in the UK, they had the olive cook issue where, where that had created a, a media sensational storm around a, a woman who'd received numerous direct response pieces and the media had inaccurately portrayed her story as, as being a result of being oversolicited. Um, that, in addition, created a media backlash or, or, or a regulatory whiplash where, or get, where, where the regulators then got involved in something that wasn't even our fault and, and further, further uh, created a catastrophe. Here. 
And and I think as when we when we think about fundraising, we often use our flippant terms. We meet with a board and they say, "Why should I invest?" And we say, "Oh, it should, takes money to make money." Or you know, and and I would you know might tell family members they'd say, "Well, I don't believe in fundraising," and we might flippantly say, "Well, it's a necessary evil for us to do good work." And we we often spoke about these these negative terms and. And so, you know, meeting with with Neil Galliford and and Paula Atfield in in uh, at one of the AFP conferences, um, we'd we'd been talking about what we needed to do, and all of us, by pure happenstance, actually went to Ian's session where he was talking about ideology and in fundraising and the profession and the different ideologies. So, um, when I finished that, I think we went up and I, we spoke to Ian and Paula and Neil and I kind of talked after, and and I, I then drafted a paper and around the issue that we could use in terms of forming our future and talk about this from a, from an, in a new way and in a new way of talking about the profession, which resulted in then us bringing Ian in uh, to a, a Canadian leadership retreat in Ottawa and having a, a lengthy conversation about the needs of this and a conversation about media perceptions. And, and, and interestingly enough, right now we've in the last while we've talked about we charity and actually now I have a national government charity literally named after a charity called the We Charity Scandal. And so even though we'd assume something like this couldn't happen in Canada, we're right now in the throes. Of it. So that's what makes it really right now, too. That's a great set of background. And, um, of course, uh, everyone out there that's ever wondering whether you should actually uh, speak at conferences and whether you'll get uh, any connections out of that now has to know that a lot of people went to your session, Ian. And um, and good thing you weren't drinking cocktails before that, or maybe you are. Um, uh, but that's fantastic that they heard what you had to say, and that's where that started. So tell us, pick up the baton from Scott, and tell us a little bit more about what happened next. Yeah, so one of the things at Regari that we've always been interested in um, and tried to do some work on is the way people perceive fundraising and the way fundraisers engage with their stakeholders, especially those who are kind of critical of the way fundraising operates. So um, you mentioned it, um, um, Scott mentioned it as well, the kind of tropes that you hear about fundraising being a necessary evil. Another one is that people will say, I don't need to be asked, I'll just give without needing to be asked. Whereas the research tells us that, you know, upwards of 85, 90% of people give because they actually are asked. But people have this perception about how they give, which is different to actually how they do it. And then they get angry when someone does ask. And then they get even angrier when they find out that person was paid to, to ask. So there are these whole per perception engagement issues. And they've existed in Canada, in the States, in the UK, um, in most English-speaking countries that do fundraising, and in a lot of other countries as well, especially the Northern European ones, have very similar public engagement problems. And it goes back a long way. And when fundraisers, as you, um, as you, as you said, try to um, deal with this, they try to respond to it in a rational way. But the people making these criticisms aren't making rational criticisms of fundraising. They're making very heartfelt points of principle that you shouldn't ask me. You shouldn't get paid to ask me. You shouldn't be spending a lot of money on asking because that diverts money from the calls. So when these people hold, you know, very passionate, deep felt points of principle objections to fundraising, you can't counter that by saying, ah, yes, but look how much money we, we raise. And one of the ones that is often used in terms of fundraiser and, and senior staff salaries is the, per, well, you know, this person could again earn a lot more money working in the corporate sector. 
And they don't care about that. That's not their point that they could get more working somewhere else. They say they shouldn't earn this amount working in the voluntary sector. So what I think is we're talking past our critics in one respect. So they're coming with a point of principle and we're trying to argue them out of that point of principle with facts and numbers and stats. And it's just not going to work. So we're talking past them. And I think the insight that we have to look at here is that those arguments against fundraising, those principled arguments, they're kind of ideological. And so it's important to understand what ideology ideology means here. We're not we're not being pejorative. We're not just trying to dismiss what they say as a criticism, like, oh, that's just ideology. And it doesn't mean it's a political ideology, like conservative or liberal or something like that. Ideology is a way of thinking about things that's informed by particular beliefs about the way things ought to be. So I think what we are seeing here is that members of the public have particular core beliefs about the way charities should be done that are ideological. And the way I termed this uh, in the work is that this is kind of a voluntarist, vol voluntarist ideology. It's all about how charity should be voluntary, done from self-sacrifice, point of principle, you shouldn't get enrichment. It's all about the person's choice. And so if their arguments are ideological, we need a counter ideology to argue back against that. It's not about trying to get them to change their mind on point, points of principle and points of with points of fact it's about having a belief in ourselves an ideological belief in ourselves that we can say well you believe that but we believe this and we think there are good reasons to believe what we do let's have a conversation about that so that's how we came together there the whole point of, about um, talking about the the narrative and what we could do for canada was to get away from this trap that a lot of fundraisers in other countries have fallen into about trying to have an argument about why they are wrong and having a, a conversation about different sets of beliefs and why we believe what we do, and maybe you could believe what we do as well if we talk about it. Okay. So that's a pretty comprehensive piece to chew on. And so what did we do with that, Paula? What did we do with that to actually pull that into our profession? Because, I mean, th there's a lot there, but how do we make that real for fundraisers and, and fundraising organizations in Canada? Yeah, there, there is a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. And, and thank you, Ian, for that um, that description. What we did was uh, we engaged Ian and Rogare, uh, Scott and myself and other volunteers to engage in a, in a deep research pro project about Canadians, in particular vis-a-vis -vis fundraising um, and charitable and the charitable sector. And, and really what that research uncovered is that Canadians by and large and Ian and Scott of course you can weigh in here are a fairly trusting lot but that they still did to a certain degree carry this ideology the volunteerist ideolo ideology that Ian referred to charities should be small charities shouldn't pay their fundraisers all the money raised should go into the mission and that, that was, that's a fairly widely held belief. And so what we set about building with Ian's help was a narrative, a new narrative, if you will, to position a, a new ideology for fundraisers, which uh, we ended up calling, Ian ended up calling the professionalist ideology. And we took that, we took that new narrative and we applied it to to certain questions that fundraisers were getting, those ones we've referenced before, you're spending too much on fundraising, and took it from a white paper into very practical solutions and, and a way for 
fundraisers to talk about our profession and show the impact of our work. And, and to Ian's earlier point, it's no longer about trying to fight a volunteerist ideology with facts. It's about telling our story, our own narrative, if you will, in a convincing way. And um, from that, we were able to train a kind of cohort of AFP volunteers um, on how to use that narrative best. Now, we did that training, uh, if I remember, in Vancouver, didn't we? Um, yeah, that's, that's right. That was a million years ago in COVID. Was, we were all face-to-face -face then. Imagine that. That was last year, 20, uh, 2019. We were all face-to-face -face in, um, in Vancouver, and there was, there was um, 20 plus of us who, who learned how to, to use that narrative. And I can tell you, I, I have kind of internalized it now. And so when I speak about our work as fundraisers, it, it naturally comes out in a way where I'm not spewing facts. I'm leaning towards this positive, the impact, the positive impact that fundraisers have and have used, have leaned on the narrative or the ideology when interviewed by the, the, the media, for example, about our work in my role as chair of AFP Canada or, uh, doing written articles and that type of thing. So it's been incredibly valuable for me personally, as well as professionally. That's awesome. And I think we had a, recently a gathering, um, a sort of a, re, a recentering of folks who, some of whom were involved in that original narrative piece and some new people. Um, how did that go? I wasn't able to join that call. Were you part of that, Paula? Or yes, Scott, I, yeah, ahead, Scott was too. So I'll let Scott speak to it. Yeah, I'll, Scott, just, I'll just say, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it was. And, you know, the nice part of the gathering is it allowed us to start sharing notes about how this was being used. And I think when we first envisioned this, we were thinking media, maybe political meetings with MLAs or MPs or when we're appearing in front of Senate or other things, which, by the way, it's been helpful for each of those things. But what we're finding is those that are trained are starting to use it with their own CEOs. They're using it with, with their own board of directors to start sharing the ideology here and, and starting to help them to understand why some of these, why fundraising is important, why especially professional fundraising is important, which is a big piece as well in positioning. And, and so some, are, some are, are using this every day in their organizations. And I think, you know, when I think about key audiences that are sometimes groups we need to talk to, we have CEOs that come into leadership in nonprofits that have their, their entire background Background as being a volunteer in the sector, not being a, a paid or so. We need to use and, and think about that narrative and help teach them about the narrative and why it's important because they're the ones also defending this and budgets and investment to our boards. And so, you know, thinking about how we can adapt to the way we talk about this and, and using messages more in internally versus just thinking about them as external. That's a very interesting um, observation. I'm not sure. Well, like you said, we weren't sure at the beginning of where we would use this mostly and having that pop up was really, really helpful. Um, I have a thought about, and I want to circle back to it around um, another group of influencers out there. But before I do that, Paula, did you want to add to what Scott added, uh, talked about um, uh, with respect to the second gathering? No, I think, I, I think well, I should say yes. I think Scott delivered sometimes people say no and then though I have nothing to add and then they'll add a whole bunch more um, <laughs> so I would say Scott delivered a great uh, summary of that event and we do we do plan to have more so I just your listeners can uh, stay tuned because this is something we want to continue to get the word out 
That's great. And so um, what's next with the narrative or what are the, what are the other things that, uh, what, what else have we learned about it? Is it working perfectly? Does it need to be uh, shaped and honed? Ian, you got your hand up. I was going to say, perhaps if some people aren't aware of kind of what's actually in it, because we've spoken about using it, but it might be a good idea to talk about some of the things that... Oh, are, that and that we don't want people to actually use it, right? Uh, no, I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so the idea of this, the, the, the idea of uh, a couple of things kind of um, are right at the core of this. So one is this idea that it's the professionalist ideology, and that's the opposite to, to the voluntarist one. So that would say, for, for example, that... When people say charities need to be small and they need to be local and they need to not pay for, for big marketing things, the idea is that we need to be as, as professional and business-like as we need to be in order to help our beneficiaries. It's not so much about what you perceive we should be. It's about what we can do with the support that you give us to help our core beneficiary group. And that brings us on to the second key thing that underpins this, and that's using the theory of ethics we've developed at Regari, which we call rights balancing fundraising ethics, which is about trying to balance your duties to donors and the public with your duties to the beneficiaries. Because in a lot of ethical decision-making in fundraising, we only focus on one of our stakeholders, shockingly and surprisingly, and that's the donor or the public. And we don't often think about the, how the decisions we make impacts on our beneficiaries. It sounds surprising, but it's true that it works that way. So when we're talking in the narrative, and the, although, uh, as, as Paul has said, we're trying to tell our story, we still are going to engage with people. We're going to still have robust conversations with people, especially if they're journalists, especially if they're parliamentarians and, and regulators. So, for instance, when, if somebody were to say, well, why do you need to spend that much money? It's, it's immoral that you're spending all this money that could go to the cause. You'd respond by saying, well, we could do that, but we'd have a lot less money to help people with. And the most important thing is that we're helping the people we serve. I'm sure you'd agree with that. And so it's subtly, it's subtly shifting the conversation to get them to try and agree with some statements that we are making, but it's not specifically trying to argue against the one that they are making. So it might seem quite similar, but there's a subtle shift of emphasis in the way we, we, we do that. And the other thing that's that really, I think, relevant to the Canadian context is that the reason um, that I was asked to do this is because we've done a lot of work on similar stuff, but not as formalised in this in the UK, because the British media has really got it in for fundraising, and it has done for a long time. And so a lot of the, um, the stuff that, that we do in the UK to combat negative perceptions of engagement, it's all firefighting. It, we're always on the back foot. There's already, always somebody more powerful with more influence telling us we are wrong. And it's hard not to be defensive in those situations. But it really isn't as bad as that in Canada. So, so Vitrio, you helped me put together that massive database of, of, of media stories you're lucky, really, because although you get some negative stuff in the media and there's some negative sentiment around there, you know, Canadians have this stereotype about being nice and you are nicer. <laughs> Your journalists are nicer than, than, than British journalists. So I think what the, the, the positive um, opportunity you have with this narrative is that whereas in other parts of the world, in the UK, and I would imagine Australia would be more like this as well, um, you'd have to be using it to firefight. You've got much more opportunity to use it to make bridges. 
And so one of the things that we looked at with the research that are into Canadians is that Canadians have a particular civic philosophy that's all about coming together, about rapprochement, about all about getting around the table and trying to balance competing interests of different groups. So when you're talking about this balancing of donors and beneficiaries' duties, you've got you should be having a receptive audience amongst Canadian media and the people who make the laws. So I think that's one of the ways that the, the, the stuff we've got in here plays very much into a Canadian context. I was going to ask you about that context amongst uh, countries like uh, the UK, Australia, and Canada. And uh, one of the things, can you guys still hear me? I, mm -hmm. I'm frozen, so I'm just making sure that you can hear me. Um, but the, um, <clears throat> I'm curious because we also have listeners beyond our borders. And uh, I was surprised to, to hear this, but I'm happy to say that we have a lot of listeners in the U.S. And I'm curious, their media uh, arguably is as vociferous as it is in the UK, and yet I don't sense that the public sentiment against fundraising is quite as strong. Um, do you have any thoughts or ideas or experience with that? Me? Yeah, Ian, sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, <clears throat> I'm not sure about the public sentiment, but there's enough, well, as we know, there's been enough media, regulatory, and perhaps public sentiment to lead Dan Pelotta to start his charity defence council. So I don't have to, to hand the research looking into what the public think about charities myself, but I'd be very surprised if there was not something very similar, some similar ideas going on in the United States. Okay. Um, especially coming out of, as Dan points out, the Puritan tradition that led to a lot of uh, philanthropy, a lot of charity and, and a, a lot of giving. So I'd be surprised if there weren't, but as you've, you've, you can look at the media, especially with the, for instance, the Wounded Warrior um, issue on fundraising costs. The American media was much more akin to the British media in the way it tackled that than it was to the Canadian media. And there was one story that I analysed in Canada and it was, it, it was very similar. It was in the Canadian National newspaper and it was similar in tone to the kind of article in the, in the United Kingdom that we get in the charity media. It was going into both sides. It was affording everyone both, uh, both, um, both sides an opportunity to speak. And it was very, very fair to the charity sector. If that had been in the Daily Mail, you'd have been crucified. Um, but, you know, you've got, I think, even more so than the States as well, I think you've got, um, you've got a big opportunity to start building bridges with this narrative. I love that idea that we're not, we don't have to firefight as much in Canada and we can build bridges. I, I feel very good about that as a Canadian. <laughs> so that's great. What, so thank you for the, for the context and for actually uh, bringing to life uh, some of the, the examples associated with the narrative. And we can continue to do that throughout the, the program. I had asked, asked a question at the front end of that, which may have no legs. Uh, we can move on to other things. But I'm curious, what's next uh, and how are we reshaping or or fine-tuning the narrative going forward? What are the, the thoughts and ideas? Are there parts of the narrative that aren't working? Who wants to weigh in? I wouldn't, this is, this, yeah, I wouldn't say that, that it's not working. I think, I think what we, we now need to think about is how to scale. And, right. and so, you know, we've got a, a group of advocates that are, that are trained. Uh, we have some chapters that are, are looking at, at doing training or have already completed some level of training. Um, but part of this, it's, it's like a muscle, right? If we don't exercise it, it's, it's going to, uh, it's going to get weak. And, and this isn't a checkbox that, that we can check. We need to keep, keep making sure that people that enter this profession, people that enter leadership roles in our organizations are, are engaged in, in aspects of the narrative that can help them every day. 
And I think what we also know is that a lot of people that enter our profession leave relatively quickly because they're frustrated by exactly these questions and, and issues that we're dealing with on a regular basis of how can I credibly even talk to my father-in-law about what I do um, when they fundamentally don't believe that I should exist. And so, you know, the narrative is, is something that I think we can use to empower people around why they do their work, around the importance of the and their central role in their organizations, and it, and it fits together. So, um, so, so my, my big response is scale. And I think right now, um, we, we have a basis to start. I think we've, we've executed the first parts of the plan to make sure that we have trained advocates. The next is how do we scale it up so that not only fundraising leaders have it, but, but, but fundraising professionals. And we're seeing really good uh, conference sessions where we're having several people come, you know, 20, 30 people, 40 people coming to sessions to learn about this because they're seeing it as important as well. And not only important for them when they're meeting with the media, but when they're talking to their organizations and others. And so that's, I think that's a, that's a key, key transition piece and maybe a pivot point for us is how we get bigger. That's great. I, I was hoping you would say scale. And I'm curious, Paula, um, I imagine there's been some conversations around the AFP Canada board. I know, Scott, you're still involved in that, but I'm kind of looking uh, digitally here at, uh, at Paula about, are there some thoughts about what else we can do to scale and what other audiences we can get to? For example, I, I, I haven't looked fully through the Congress program, but I, I'm hoping that if not this year, at some year that we have more of these sessions around this. Um, so what's, what's AFP's stance on this at a national level? Well, well, for sure. I mean, 100% scaling is our next uh, big opportunity with the narrative. And, and I think also COVID has brought the opportunities just in the sense that, um, you know, it was a challenge for us to bring 30, 40 people together to Vancouver to do the training. We now have the opportunity to do that digitally, as you've suggested, and that's what we're, we're looking at doing. We're looking at bringing it to a larger audience, a Canadian audience, um, digitally. It, 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 it brings its challenges because as part of the narrative training, we had discussions. We broke out into different groups. Now, of course, we can do that on Zoom, too. We just... We just um, are going to take the next step of figuring out how to translate a day-long program, which is what it was, the training, and, and bring it to our audience online here in Canada. And we've had some interest, even, and, and hopefully Ian can speak to this, we've had some interest beyond our borders. We've had some interest in the U.S., and uh, we've taken, Ian himself um, has presented to our friends in Australia, talk, talk to them about the narrative each country is going to require, though, its own research and its own slant because each country views fundraising, views nonprofits in a different way. And so in, 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 my, in my perfect world, um, I'm, I'm sure Scott and Ian would agree, is we, we will this thing come to fruition in, in other countries as well. Talk Thanks. about scaling up. Yes. Yeah. Now, Ian and I had a very brief conversation in, in some of the pre the prep for this show of, about exactly that, about um, where Australia was in terms of uh, taking this on. Uh, it's so interesting and, and, a, and a real, I don't know, underscoring of how philanthropy is very cultural. Right. And so, Ian, I can see you've got something to say. So weigh in, my friend. Yeah, I think that some of the core parts of this are transferable um, and so any other narrative in other countries I'm sure would build upon this 
but it doesn't necessarily mean you can transfer it lock, stock and barrel because, as, as Paul has said, some of the objections, some of the cultural differences there just may, may mean that you can't have conversations in Australia that you would be able to have with Canadian journalists or Canadian regulators. Because, and so you've, you've got to do the research and you've got to think, how do we adapt a narrative like this to apply in, in, in our country? I think you could take it, use it as it is, and, and it would work okay for you but you really need it fine-tuned to, to your situation. Um, because, you know, I think with some of the messages that we'd be putting out, probably wouldn't work in the UK if we tried some of the things that, that, you're, that you're doing. And in terms of scalability, um, Paula hit the nail on the head um, in one of the early comments she said about how she said she, she's internalised this. And I think that's what happens in the end. You, you use it so much, you get the idea. So it's not like trying to memorise a set of key messages. It's because it's an ideology, um, and people who subscribe to ideologies like conservatism or communism or liberalism or feminism or anything like that, they don't have to think about what they're going to say about them. They know what they're going to say about them because they're a core part. They've internalized those ideas. And once you can move it to that, you can just have conversations with people about why we believe what we do, why we do what we do, what's the end result of that without having to think about it. And it fits very well for social media. I mean, you can have these conversations online with people very very easily and very quickly so for instance if somebody were to say you know isn't it terrible that this ceo gets paid x number of hundred thousand dollars a year a response that will come out the narrative well it depends how good she is <laughs> and we would never have thought about having a response like that before we'd have said well she provides lots and lots of value and she does yeah, this it's a complex sort of organization yeah complex and all that but if you say it depends how good she is you know some it might not fall with the person you're talking to, but it might make them think, well, I never thought about it like that. And the other important point is you're not only trying to talk to the person who you're discussing with, you're talking to all the people that listen to that person or are listening into the conversation. You're not trying to influence one person, you're influencing everybody who's part or, or observing or hearing that conversation. That's a nice segue into something I thought about earlier. That's fantastic, Ian. Thanks for for putting that way. The thing I was thinking about earlier was audiences um, that have influence in the nonprofit sector. And I know that we started with an AFP audience in Vancouver, which is great. And there's a lot of influencers and leaders in that room. Um, but I've come to, I've, you know, in the last few months with COVID or something, I've, I've realized that, um, you know, Canada actually has more than three consulting firms. Um, you know, we, we've got, we've got actually a few more things going on with leaders who are in front of boards a lot. Uh, a lot of them are actually uh, one or two person uh, agencies, organizations. I think that it'd be interesting to explore. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm on a little bit of a soapbox. Leave that alone. Kick it on, out from under me after. But I think there's an opportunity to have a conversation with that group specifically because they're so often looked to for advice. Whether you're, you know, you're, you're a single shingle uh, north of Barrie um, working with uh, all the nonprofits in that area, or your your you know Nicholas Offord with the Offord Group, um, the idea that you have some influence in front of boards, I think this narrative might have some legs with them. Scott, you unmiked yourself. Did you want to say something? Yeah, well, I think we we're in a world of numerous influencers, and and you know Ian Ian is now in our world can be, be an influencer in Canada, even from the UK, which is which is awesome. And, and boards listed outside council. And it's one of the interesting things about being a, 
um, someone hired to go in and speak to boards is that they they listen, they engage in conversation. And I think I think the way the fundraising investment has been has has lost its 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 uh, penetration because of the way we talk about it. And and I think organizations when they when they get to the heart of what they do in this narrative, which is around having um, making the greatest impact possible for those they serve. I, I can see boards uniting around that, making the biggest, largest fundraising investment in their history. I see boards fighting against that, and I think that's the that's the challenge is the way we position some of these investments. And I think I think as soon as we talk about the major investment that's coming in, we we leave ourselves open to to conversation and the challenge that sometimes this takes two three years, and and also the fact that an entire culture in an organization or the, the, the way people engage in philanthropy makes a difference. But when we talk about the uniting mission of everybody trying to do the best for the people they serve is something all of us can rally around. And then how fundraising fits into that is just as important as how, how the, the program people fit into it because that we're all uh, uh, a leg under the same stool. And I think that's been a challenge for many of us is fundraising has been sit on this Island and it hasn't been brought into the mission. And I think we can find that way to bring this narrative right into the organization, into the mission of the heart and, and help fundraising be the beating heart of the organization and rather than something that's happening somewhere else. While you were talking, Scott, a light bulb went off in my head and I went, oh man, I'm part of the problem, right? I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm one of those people that says, fund, you know, even though I, I'm, I, I subscribe to the narrative, I speak, I try to speak it, I try to learn, I try to use the muscle, Sometimes in my DNA, I still think, well, fundraising is just something we do to make the mission happen, as opposed to actually the mission is all of that and fundraising is part of that. I think that's what I heard you saying is, is you know, we got to stop thinking about it as a separate thing. Well, and I think organizations have always struggled where, where fundraising sits. And I, I, I've been consulting long enough to see that fundraising doesn't sit at the strategy table often. In a lot of organizations, it does. And I give those organizations full credit. But organizations need to really think about how they can engage in these deep conversations about fundraising and how this is going to be impacting the people that they serve as deeply in some cases as the finance budget. This is all part of the budget process. This is part of the strategy. And and having your, your fundraisers at the table is going to help make sure that we have these deep conversations about our programs. And as fundraisers, I hope we engage in those conversations and are prepared to engage deeply. And that's what this narrative helps us do is prepare our fundraisers to engage deeply in good conversations about our work. That's awesome. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm mindful of time We're we're not out of time, but we're getting close to when I want to uh, turn the tables back to you to, to, to share with our audience or your closing thoughts. But uh, was there something in this conversation today that you were hoping we would talk about that we didn't? Or did we kind of cover enough waterfront to, to give people a taste that the, that the narrative is something they can dig into? Paula, your hand went up. Tell us what your thoughts are. It, it did. You know, I, I think we'd be remiss. I think, well, I think we've covered the, the territory of uh, the new narrative for fundraising really wonderfully. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't thank uh, or mention Jennifer Johnston, who is the president and CEO of the Central Cities Foundation, for her work, tremendous work in leading as a volunteer for AFP Canada in leading in leading this work, and there were many, many, many people who supported Jennifer and us um, 
over the last several years because I'm trying to remember when it was we saw Ian actually present at AFP Icon. It was maybe four. Sorry? 2017 in San Francisco. 2017. So oh, over that's right. Yeah. Oh, so it's been a labor of love for a long time. So yeah. I just want to give a shout out to Jennifer. That's great. I'm glad you did that. And thank you. I did have that in my notes and near the closing. So I'm glad it, that you brought that up. No, it's great um, because it's really important to acknowledge all. And there's so many people who played a role uh, that the trainers for the narrative last year were amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to list them all off for the sake of for, that I might miss one. But there were so many folks involved. It was great to uh, to have all of us there. So um, anything else before I um, sort of draw a bow on yeah, this? I, I just like to sum up with something about this because there was a lot of there were, there's a lot of reading, there's a lot of writing, there's a lot of training in this, and there was you know the white paper was massive, the narrative document was quite big, um, and I think people might think, oh, oh well, I can't I can't do that, I can't I can't get involved with that. It's it's too difficult. There's too much to learn, um, but there isn't. I mean, you can, you can, a lot of the, the work we did was so that us building it knew where we were coming from, why we were doing it there, could answer every question. But you can drill this down to, I mean, you know, a couple of pages that you can start internalizing it. And the whole thing about this is not to make, is to give people something, a different way of thinking about their profession, about their calling, their moral purpose as a professional, about that they can believe in and gives them pride in what they do but they can easily articulate that pride and that belief to other people and not feel like they have to fall back and feel defensive because they don't have that core professional identity, which so many other professions have. So if people are thinking, yeah, it's fine, but it's not for me, it is for you and it won't be that difficult to buy into it and start internalizing it and using it in conversations with friends, with, with, with peers, with boards. I mean, not everyone's going to bump into a journalist or a regulator or a parliamentarian, but you're going to bump, in, jump, bump into, in your own family, several doubters of fundraising. And I think this gives you a much more passionate way to engage and be passionate about what you do, but also a way, a convincing way to bring people around. Finally, I can tell my mom something to make her proud. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> well, thank you. And I was waiting for you to cut my hamstrings and you did it. Scott, you came on mic. What were you going to say? Well, I was just hoping Ian would talk to my mom too. So that would be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have been great. And uh, Ian uh, and everyone involved in this, but Ian, uh, we, do, we owe you a debt of gratitude for the thinking that has gone into this and for your continued involvement. Uh, Paula, you continue to lead the charge. You do as well, Scott. So thank you for all of that. You've been great guests. Um, I hope you'll all come back in various iterations. We've got lots of great topics coming up this year and, and you have something to add to all of them. But before we go, I just want to—I want to give each of you a chance to tell a little bit more about what's going on with your lives. Uh, you know what's what, what's happening uh, professionally or personally, and maybe shout-outs that you want to give to the audience. You have this opportunity. This is going to come out uh, just before uh, not Congress, uh, just before um, I, we're not calling it not philanthropy day, are we? Um, we're calling it philanthropy day, I hope. Um, and so national philanthropy day. So before we go, I, just a, a, giving you a bit of a podium, and I'm going to start start with you, Paula. What do you want our audience to hear? What do you want them to take away from today? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so you, you both joked, uh, Ian and Scott, you joked about your moms maybe not understanding what fundraising is or what you do for a living. And I'm very fortunate that my mother is a fundraiser, Mary Atfield. So you said sh shout, shout outs, Vincent. So I'll send one. Hi, mom. Um, 
so so for fun what i do is afp canada and um you know scott mentioned or alluded to this idea that fundraising is really the mission and during these times of crisis in in canada one of my worries has been um that charities across the board are are facing the impetus or the desire to cut back on on fundraising costs or expense part of that might be they're they're afraid that their uh cost to fundraise ratios will get so high that it'll 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 trigger um, the CRA to start scrutinizing their work and I, I just want to say that one of the things that AFP Canada has been doing has been talking with CRA and you know Scott said we, we need to fundraisers need to lean in we need to have these conversations and we use the narrative to have conversations with the CRA and to have conversations with our government in in any case this for your listeners, as a result of our conversations, the CRA have really assured us, um, this is the Canada Revenue Agency, um, Ian, have assured us that under special circumstances such as a pandemic, that there is flexibility in, in the guidelines around cost to raise a dollar. And folks, you can visit our, our AFP Canada website to, to learn a little bit more about, about that. And so I think rather than cutting fundraising costs, now is the time for charities to actually invest in fundraising, in fundraising staff and in out, and their outreach work. And, and the, the good news is that Canadians are generous and, and fundraising is the mission. And, and we can't fulfill our missions without funding fundraising. So it takes money to make money. And as fundraisers, it's, it's our imperative to ask. And, and lastly, it just... I, I want to say again that Canadians are incredibly generous and it really always my, lifts my spirits during these difficult times that it's fundraisers who are connecting uh, donors to great causes and filling a gap that government just can't fill for us, especially, especially um, during COVID. So thank you for the opportunity to have these conversations, Vincent. It's great to speak with you and, and you, Ian and Scott, and long continue our work. Well, that was awesome, uh, Paula. I, and I am glad to hear that, and, that our friends at CRA actually um, have a heart. I knew they did. And uh, this is a great example that is there. But um, now we get to turn to someone who has, has to follow you after that great uh, podium talk. And that's you, Scott. Uh, we're going to give the opportunity for you to, uh, to share what you want the audience to hear, what's going on, um, what's new, what's not. Yeah, I, I'm just going to have Paula's mom speak to my mom. I think maybe that's the best way to kind of work around the narrative here. Um, you know, I think I think we're at we're at a, a time of transition in Canada and, and maybe around the world. And I think COVID is one of those times that that some organizations are leaning into it and and some are are trying to shove it into the closet and pretend it doesn't exist. And I think um, this is one of those times when when we want to make sure we're really clear about what the outcome of our work is, where we can make a difference and how we can make a difference. And I'm starting to see competing messages out there where where we 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 know from national surveys that that revenues are down in about 70% of organizations and and the automatic response I get from fundraisers is yeah they say yes but donations are up in the first in the second quarter of this year and I'm like I know but we're not the only part of this solution right that we're we're part we're we're part of that team and that strategy team and I think you know while advocating for fundraising is is critical and it's important 
us looking at how we can be part of the big solution for this next year and, and two years down the road is going to make a huge is going to make a huge difference in these organizations. And so, fundraising plays its part. What we can do to help look at other earned revenue or generate revenues is going to be important. And I think any messages people take out of this narrative work, take from AFP, talk to their peers to use this this work is really going to make a difference. And I think that's where where I hope that people take and, and land on as they as they move forward. Thank you, Scott. Uh, no surprise. Uh, uh, another great um, shout out to the, the community. I'm glad that you actually talked about how this is bigger than fundraising. And uh, sometimes we get caught up in our own our own narrative. Uh, and, and, that, and, and if we actually want to be part of a larger narrative, we're going to have to remind ourselves that there's a bigger picture there and that we're part of the whole team. I do hear that from people that donations are up, but revenues are down. Well, the CEO is looking at the whole picture. So I hope that's interesting. Ian, uh, we kick this off with you being introduced. We're going to cap it off with you being uh, given the opportunity to have the last word. Well, almost the last word. I get the last word. Well, thanks for that. So the thing I'd just like briefly like to talk about is how we find the big solutions to the problems that we face. So I run a think tank. It's called Regari, which is spelled R-O-G-A-R-E. It's Latin for to ask. So if anyone wants to, to find that, Regari and fundraising think tank is the only thing that will come up in your searches. Uh, and what we try and do, and we did this a lot with a narrative, we are trying to solve an, a lot of fundraising um, challenges by rethinking the way we do that. By, we're a think tank, we're rethinking fundraising. We're looking at ideas outside of fundraising in domains such as moral philosophy, political philosophy, two things we use in the, to build the narrative, um, human geography, anthropology we're looking at how anthropology can help tell different stories to our beneficiaries all sorts of domains evolutionary biology we're bringing in as well into in, into solving the problems that we face so it's all about getting these novel ideas and turning them into actionable ideas for fundraisers and to do that we need people engaged with what we do Brigari is a very small organization with massive dreams and we're only going to make that work if we can get a lot of critical thinkers involved in this. So one of the critical thinkers is involved in what we do is, is Paula. Paula's on the Regari Council. That's the group of people that help us uh, run Regari. So thank you, Paula. And also big um, shout out to our organization, Stephen Thomas, who are one of our associate members and, and help fund us. But what I'm asking, if anyone's listening to this and is engaged with the ideas or knows about us and you look at what's going on in fundraising, and think that's not really thought through very well, we could do better, I've just seen something great, why is no one doing that? Well, you might be the person that we're looking for to help come and work in Regari and rethink fundraising. And we're just about in the process of having a new structure, a whole bunch of new methodologies for projects. So, and especially in Canada, because I found Canadian fundraisers to be extremely good critical thinkers. And I'd like a bunch more Canadians coming into Regari and help us do some of the work we do. So I hope that isn't too much naked self-promotion because the objective of that was to get more and better ideas into fundraising. It was just going to be channeled through Regari. So I hope that was okay. That was awesome. And we love uh, sort of naked marketing like that. Love it. Love it. So, so, so anyone was engaged with this, please find me on LinkedIn or, or, or Twitter. Drop me a message. And we absolutely. And we'll put a lot of that in the show notes. So thank you all for, for taking part in that. And with that, our gift of another Brain Trust Philanthropy powered by Vitreo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month for our last episode of this upside down year, where we will try to peer into the looking glass for 2021. 
We're assembling our guest list now. Stay tuned. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay sane. We look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Nicole Nardi, Katja Asselmanning, and me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is produced in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Vitreo Group. That's at sign V-I-T-R-E-O Group. You can listen and subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or by visiting our website, betrayogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, and hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.